considering the number of um, Jews uh, in media, in politics, who being Jews themselves, um, yet um, mainly propaganda, anti-Semitic uh, tendencies in everything, in politics, in literature, in, in art, in politics, in, in everything. How would you explain that? That's a great question. I don't have the answer, to be honest. Um, but I'll say a few comments. I think, first of all, the first thing that comes to mind is the most pernicious form of hatred is when the victim of the hatred internalizes the hatred. In any form of hatred, once you start believing uh, that the, the, the demonization of the group in which you belong to and you internalize it, and that's the ultimate manifestation of hatred. And it's tragic. Um, that's the first point. The second point is, you know, uh, I think in this climate, to be a successful scholar, to be a successful journalist, if you want to work for the, the Guardian and the Monde and the New York Times, uh, if you want to teach at the best universities in the world, you have to toe a line. You have to toe the ideological line. And if you reject that line, uh, you have a problem. You're not going to work for the New York Times. You're not going to be tenured at uh, certain universities. And people want to feel uh, successful and safe and get involved or uh, be quiet. Some people, it's amazing. So, you know, this gap is doing these seminars, so there's like 10 people here. If Norman Finkelstein was here, a self-hating Jew, you can book the biggest room in this university and the, the crowd will be overflowing. It becomes a spectacle. And that is tragic. It's tragic that students at the best universities in the Western world will go to a circus, a circus, a, a sad, a sad, those parents are Holocaust survivors, sad, it's tragic. They'll go to the circus and see a Jew defaming himself and his people, but to go and hear serious scholars who are publishing and working on these uh, matters in, in very significant ways, you get 10, 20, 30 people. Right? So what does that say about our society? What does that say uh, about this moment in history? Um, these are very serious issues, very serious pathologies, very serious. And I think colleague here doing the work on violence against women, uh, I think in the feminist movement, people who are doing scholarship on, on, on sexism and on racism, there's a whole body of literature on notions of self-hatred, how language, how, how society, the way we use language, linguistics, segregation, there's a, there's a huge body of rich literature trying to understand how we, as women or African black people, fit into society, how are we defined, who defines us, what's the language, it's a whole wonderful, over the last 50, 60, 70 years, an explosion of serious research. Nobody is doing that in terms of the internalization of anti-Semitism. Why are, how do, you know, in the 60s and 70s, women became aware of what they were, how they were fitting in, how they were dressing, how they were behaving. There was a whole, you know, self-analysis, self-awareness of the group, trying to understand their place in society. We don't do that. The people studying anti-Semitism, the Jewish community, we don't do it. 
you know, I was with a group of uh, some serious people, Jewish leaders in New York, business leaders, talking about Iran, and I was saying, you know, sanctions, sanctions, what, you know, what, what about the banks and the oil companies, they have a vested interest to do away with the sanctions in Iran. How do we address that? How do we address international power as part of a community that has a vested interest in this power? And because, I would argue, by this group of people, because of the stereotype of notions of Jewish power and the fear, the fear, the deep fear that our community has about confronting this anti-Semitic trope, we don't, we don't deal with it. And I think, so it's, 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 a it's a very important question. And it should be addressed, and I don't think it's being addressed adequately. There's a lot of reasons for it, but we need to try to situate ourselves and try to understand what's going on. Flip side, uh, are there any notable uh, non-Jews who are taking on this uh, academically, or is it sort of uh, uh, only the Jewish people uh, themselves that are able to work on this? Yeah, so that's a great question. So um, it's interesting. We have, we ran a seminar. I won't say where, but a prominent tenured professor, a Jewish man with an illustrious career, held a seminar on anti-Semitism recently. And another faculty member, these are tenured professors, both very respected people in the field. One tenured professor, a Jewish man, went up to the other Jewish tenured professor and said, you know, you were so brave to have this gap in lecture. Because if any campuses, this is not a popular topic. And I, I told them both that they should be ashamed of themselves. Because in the university in which they live, in which they work, in a major East Coast American city, you know, the, the static that they get as tenured professors is nothing. And I, not, I don't think they were brave for doing what they do. I think they're obligated. And they should be responsible for doing this. I work with a group of Muslim um, intellectuals, scholars, theologians, who are fighting Islamism, and these guys are heroes. These guys are, are brilliant and bright, and they're, they're serious people fighting for the survival of their their culture, their religion, as they know it. And um, these, are, these are people who are brave, and these are people who go around in Islamic universities, Islamic societies, uh, in the West, in the media, saying that anti-Semitism, the demonization of not just the Jewish people, but the state of Israel is anti-Muslim. And it's, it's destroying, this demonization of Israel and the Jewish people is destroying Muslim societies. These are heroes. And there are many. There's a, there's a group of six people that are coming to take a, from around the world who are coming to take a show in New York, dealing with these are Muslim intellectual spiritual leaders condemning anti-Semitism as a threat to their own society. So it's not it's not just uh, Jewish people. There's all sorts of people doing research in the field. Something you is a reasonable thing because people consciously absorb their culture. If you, you, you don't know it, you know, you're swimming in that culture and you hear anti Semitic jokes and fear and there. But it, it's um, something you do with the tendency to identify with your culture. To feel and think like everybody else, and uh, and uh, 
we're not conscious of what we're doing, but the, um, the anti-Semitic view is a person trying to adjust what it is in his culture, that means be a stranger outside
in a multicultural democratic society, everybody ought to have access to institutions, equal access to institutions, and the like. But there's certain things that are illegal, undemocratic. So you can't do honor killing, you can't deny girls education, you can't. That's against the law. So I think there is a weakness in our curriculum to, because of this sort of post-colonial, post-modern moment where we can't critique those who were once colonized, and the horrors of colonialism should not be underestimated, and racism and the like, uh, at all. We should understand that history as well as we can. But at the same time, being sensitive to that history, we can't be these sort of liberal racists where we can't condemn people who are being immoral and unethical based on democratic values, which we should, I think, proudly defend. So there's this sort of you know, I don't know if it's the melting pot theory that you, have, you know, if you're truly a good liberal American, you have to accept the difference. No, that's paternalistic racism. You know, it's not. It's not ethical in somebody's culture to to deny girls education. It's not the way it is. And if it is, we think I think we should change it. You know, so now I'm a cultural imperialist racist. Uh, you know, so. We have, to, in this globalizing world, we have to take sides. We have to, you know, take these matters seriously. For example, another interesting thing, the United States, it, because of the First Amendment, is the leading place for the propagating of hatred globally. The internet domains, domains, internet domains are largely based in the United States because of First Amendment rights, and hatred is being beamed all over the world. Well, what do we do about that? You can't just hide behind the First Amendment. Because even 200 years ago, it was against the law to call fire in the theater. There's limitations. So how do we take that limitation that existed in the cinema 100 years ago in the theater 200 years ago and apply it to the internet? You know, we, these, are, these are very important questions that, for some reason, people, I don't know, we're not engaging the ideas. We're not coming, we're not having open, honest, Debates. And I also find at this moment debates are also very personal. That if we have an argument, intellectual argument over ideas and we disagree, people get offended. You know, I think people who care about ideas ought to engage and argue vigorously or rigorously in academic seminars, at the pub, wherever you go. Argue, but with respect. And if you don't agree, that's fine, that's actually wonderful. But you know, be open, give, give the person you're arguing with uh, a couple of books or articles to read and, and hopefully they'll read it. And when you meet next time and you continue the argument, that person, you should be the most that person is recommended. And, and discuss. And don't take these debates on a personal level, but in terms of ideas. And I, I find where the, everybody's in boxes. And if you say certain things, then you're in this box. If you say in other things, you're in that box. We have, we have to more creative than that. So it's come closer to home. Uh, for a long time, we thought perhaps it was career-oriented. Um, perhaps we thought that it was societal. But now it's come home. Uh, our children, who were taught by us to be open-minded, ecumenical, caring, respectful of others, are in a state of denial. They do not want to hear that there is anti-Semitism here or abroad. They do not want to be reminded that it exists today. We remember Christendom. 
I'm never going to meet you that's sitting there. This does not occur to them, nor do they want to hear it. Have you any ideas for us? I know that's a big question. Well, I agree with what you've just said. And I, when I speak, I often use the term that you cannot wake up a dog that's pretending to sleep. And I think people know. People know. You know, but how do you wake up somebody who's pretending to sleep? And, uh, you know, I've been dealing with this issue for more than 10 years intensely. And look at what's happened in 10 years. You know, Iran has less than over 100,000, 125,000 Syrians, 4 million refugees from Syria. What are we, we don't even talk about it. Backed by Iran, which this administration was prepared to do what the French foreign minister, of all people, said was a con job. What's going on? Why this country, in my opinion, is at its greatest when it defends human rights? Its foreign policy is associated or connected to some form of human rights? You know, human rights and anti-Semitism by the Iranian revolutionary regime is not even, it's not even discussed. It's not even paid lip service to. It's not even lip service paid to. So how do we elect people like this? Well, how do universities produce some of these leaders? I mean, they, they, these guys went to the best schools that there are. We have, I, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, but we need, uh, we need answers. I, I don't know what it is, but we need conversations. Um, you know, these are, these are pressing needs that, you know, they say denial ain't just a river in Egypt. It's tough, and I don't know what the answer is. The, the, the issue is getting more and more and more crucial. Mr. Solomon. What do you make of the continued existence of, and robustness, I'd say, of anti-Semitism domestically? Um, there was a piece in the New York Times uh, like a week ago that was just, you know, trying taking an in-depth examination of anti-Jewish sentiment in one, uh, just in one, you know, pocket of upstate New York. And I was personally astounded uh, to see someone commit themselves to a quote in print in the Times that said, we're all a community here, but we don't want Jews here. This is like, a, I, you know, paraphrasing, that's the gist. And um, so what do you, I mean, I was personally astounded by that. What do, what, what do you think, how robust do you think domestic anti-Semitism, this kind of like old American anti-Semitism of, you know, rural pockets and, um, you know, closed-mindedness here at home is? So it's a great question. Um, I think anti-Semitism in this country is the elephant in the room. But there's a history of anti-Semitism in Western societies, including the United States, Canada, South American countries, and certainly Europe. And these structures, institutions, structures of thought, philosophy, of symbols, have been there for generations, and they're here. They may not be spoken about, but they're here. But in this globalizing moment, of this globalizing world, it's kind of repugnant that there's some people in rural New York, in the marginalized edges of the state, that have these views. It's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. But those people don't have much power. That's not the center of power. That bigotry, 
is ugly. And it's ugly what happened. These kids were swastikas were painted on a girl's face. There was uh, swastikas all over the schools. Nobody did anything about it. It's ugly, repugnant, old-fashioned anti-Semitism. But I want to ask you some questions. When the administration called in the Jews to lobby to hit Syria, and the Jews, the leaders of the Jewish community, in front of the global media, this was a very public invitation. What were the implications of that invitation? How did that, how did that play in the media in Egypt and Iran, in Gaza, in Ramallah, in the suburbs of Berlin, in the suburbs of Paris, in the fancy institutions in London? What message was that? And why, why again, did that happen with the sanctions on Iran? What are the implications of inviting publicly, in front of the world, the Jewish lobby to talk about policy to the president? What are the implications of that? And why is it easier for us to look at a few kind of reactionary, uneducated people in the rural edges of New York State? It's convenient to talk about them. But what's happening in terms of the discourse and the rhetoric in this globalized world, when a regime wants to exterminate the Jews and the leaders of the Western world are courting the Jewish love. What is that? Now, how do we unpack that? Can we have a conversation about that? Can I talk about it in a place like this? Can we have a dialogue? Can we situate the Jewish community in this power structures in the media, in the global media? global politics. What's going on here? What does this mean in terms of anti-Semitism? So I would say that this, Daniel, needs to be, we need to have a real discussion about what is going on globally in terms of anti-Semitism. And, and to be honest, I don't have the answer. But this topic, this is the, for me, this is the topic. And it needs to be explored by intelligent, serious people from different perspectives, from different disciplines, from different political views, from different parts of the world. What is going on? You know, if we would look at this in a newsreel from 1933, we'd understand. How is this moment going to look like in 50 years? And we don't even speak about it. Real, this subject actually is. So like a, 
that the internet kind of sanitizes violence, yeah. sanitizes hatred. Yeah, yeah. 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 Do you think that affects? So you think that's why people are here? Like, do you think that might be one of them? It's a good question. I don't know the answer. There, there have been studies that show that young people from the internet are becoming, um, what's the word, um, less sensitive, there's another word. Jaded. Desensitized to forms of violence and hatred because of the internet. Um, so I, I think this information age, is, uh, is the effects of it is going to, we don't understand what's happening. And, um, these type of events, there's a small turnout, but even in places like uh, you go to a major event at a university or a synagogue in the Jewish community, and the average age of people attending is very uh, so we're, we're, you know, what, something happening, and uh, I'm not sure what it is. Mr. Solomon may know. What do you think? Sorry? What do you think the cause of, uh, the impact of the internet and well, I personally think, I think it's important to raise the crime I mean, in the media as an undergraduate, yeah. sharp guy. I mean, I think it's important to raise the cry in you against anti-Semitism and racism on the web. But I think I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical than you of the idea of censoring the web. Um, I think it's better to name and shame, and I, uh, I admire the ADL's approach to this sort of thing. Um, Though I do think, I mean, if you don't have these dens on the web, I think domestically they're probably very minimal, just in the sense that I think that people who frequent anti-Semitic sites domestically tend not to be so much like radical Islamists, and more so, you know, those people who I asked you a question about earlier, or other people, you know, who uh, frequent Nazi sites. And they're marginal, certainly. Um, I do wonder if there's a way to kind of internalize American web freedom here. So maybe that hurly-burly of hate and nonsense isn't so easily accessed abroad. Of course, that, re you know, that requires us to work with our international partners. Um, but I'm, I'm, very, I'm very loath to apply those sort of protections domestically. But I can see your point in terms of the international state. I think you make a very important point. And I was going to say, there, yeah, in, in a society that is democratic and people are protected under the law, maybe it, it's more ex, uh, appropriate to allow freedom of speech and you know people will wage the battle of ideas and you know the truth will prevail. And freedom of speech is the way to go. Maybe you're right. Maybe limitations on freedom of speech is a problem. But in societies that are not democratic and information is controlled. This type of stuff will have, uh, you know, there isn't the, the marketplace of ideas where the truth can prevail. It's limited. So, yeah, so I think your point is important. Anybody else? If you had the ear of the leaders, the future, no, not even the leaders, just the next generation, if you had their ear for their second soundbite, what would, what would be your, the message that you wish that they would? Uh, that they would that they would take and what, what would you want them what would you want their 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 past to be and for years to come? It's a great question. I would say engage. Engage ideas, engage the political reality and take social responsibility. Do something. Um, 
you know, the, the Soviet, the Free the Soviet Jewry movement, students, the, the African National Congress was led by the ANC Youth League, students pushed to end the apartheid. Um, I don't know, students are, have disappeared from these issues. I wish they would engage them, be active, and take responsibility for their future. That's what I would say. And then have a more long, long conversation that can take months or years to engage, to take responsibility for now and for their future. Okay, so on that note, thank you for coming. And as Jonathan said earlier, um